Welcome to Beer Me. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every week, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers, importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So I'm very excited for the show today. Um, just to give you all a little bit of background of what inspired this, a couple weeks ago, we had a wonderful chat with Jeff O'Neill from Industrial Arts Brewing Company, and we kind of dug into the importance and the evolution of local malt production. And even a few weeks before that, we talked with Todd Boera from Fontaflora Brewing Company, um, and he kind of touched on how he likes to highlight uh, local ingredients and local sourcing. So as luck would have it, uh, I was connected with Brent Manning. He is the co-founder of Riverbend Malt House in Asheville, North Carolina. And today he is our guest and we'll dive into uh, local malt production and some really cool things that they have and that they do uh, so, Brent, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to pepper you with all kinds of questions, but before we dive into things too much, you had a very exciting anniversary recently. You celebrated 10 years in production, correct? Yeah, we sure did. It's uh, been quite the ride. You know, uh, when Riverbend, uh, we made our first successful batch of malt and and our little one ton system back in uh, November of 2011, and uh, celebrated our 10th anniversary in a 70,000 square foot warehouse. So wow, uh, quite a jump. Quite a jump. So I loved what you did uh, to celebrate your 10 year anniversary. You produced a special 10 year anniversary malt called Sunset Wheat. And you had 15 of the top-notch Southeast brewers make beers from this malt. And the beers really ranged in style, correct? Yeah, yeah. So for our 10th anniversary, we, we uh, decided it'd be really cool to come up with a special sort of one-off malt. Uh, we um, came up with this malt called Sunset Wheat. And uh, basically... It took uh, the same soft red winter wheat that we used to produce uh, one of our best sellers, Appalachian wheat, and we kilned it like a light Munich style product. So when we make light Munich, you're basically talking about a longer, warmer, more humid kilning recipe, and that, that's a recipe for all sorts of different uh, chemical reactions to happen inside of the grain that develop different flavors and darken the color of the finished malt. Um, so this one landed right about 9 SRM and uh, had this really interesting sort of cookie, baking spice uh, kind of flavor profile to it. And we reached out to a bunch of our uh, favorite uh, brewers across the southeast, put together some collaborations. And yeah, you're exactly right. They ranged in uh, style from English Mild to Cezanne to, you know, your uh, standard modern IPAs, um, and, uh, you know, you mentioned Fontaflora in the intro, you know, they did a really neat, uh, Belgian quad with it. So it, it, it ran the gamut and it was super fun to see what, what our brewers, uh, could come up with. Nice. Well, so listeners, if you are interested, uh, Riverbend put out a film about this. It's on YouTube. There's a link, uh, straight from their website, but definitely check it out because it's a really fun, uh, collaboration to see. So, 
we jumped ahead a little bit here and you had some terms that I kind of want to go back and define for some of our listeners. So why, let's start at the very beginning. Why is malt important to beer? So we say that malt is the soul of beer. You can have beer without hops, but you can't have beer without malt. It's most basic form. We're making uh, the sugars more readily available uh, for the brewers to extract the product. And or extract the sugar source from the grain. Um, we put the grain through three steps, uh, steeping, germinating, and kilning, all of which happen over a seven-day period. So typically about two and a half days where the grain starts off in the steep, goes through three wet-dry cycles. The moisture content goes from about 12% up to about 45%. From there, the grain, you'll see what, what we call the chit. That's the first sort of little sprout that pops out of the bottom of the kernel. And that tells us that the grain is actively al- uh, alive and some of those uh, digestive reactions that we want to see are happening. We go into uh, germination at that point. Uh, that can last for me anywhere from three to five days, depending on what type of product we're producing. And during that process, that's really where that enzymatic digestion uh, happens. And so if we want to make a light style Pilsner malt, we want to be slightly under modified. So that'll be on the short end of that uh, range. If we want something richer and darker. Uh, it's going to be on the uh, long side of that. Kilning can run from about 24 hours to 36 hours. That's where we dry the grain down um, using uh, te- air temperatures ranging from anywhere from 110 to 250 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and so those last two steps are really where the maltster's art uh, comes into play. We have a, a fairly limited selection of raw materials to play with, barley, wheat, rye, corn, oats, triticale, etc. Um, but tweaking uh, each of those steps really allows us to create a whole portfolio of different products out of, like I say, that limited amount of raw materials. And there is a lot that ends up in the end product as far as you've got flavor, you've got color, you've got available fermentable sugars. I mean, this is all, you know, what translates to the finished product of the beer. Absolutely. So, you know, modern software or, you know, old fashioned mathematics, uh, you know, brewers can take what they see on our uh, certificate of analysis and, you know, come to a uh a given recipe that fits within the guidelines of an expected style. So, you know, if it's 10% light Munich and, and 10% of a honey malt and the rest is a base malt, they can arrive at what that finished beer color should be. Uh, and if the malt is adhering to those uh, specifications, you know, there shouldn't be any surprises. Now, during the process you all have some practices that really set you apart. For example, um, you hand rake during germination. Why is that significant? Yeah. So Riverbend got its start. We were 100% floor malting. Um, this is the way malt houses looked, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, and so basically the steeping process is is the same regardless. Um, you want to get that moisture content up to about 45%. But when we transfer to the floor, the grain is in a a shallower bed, typically four to six inches deep. Uh, The maltster is pulling a a rake that kind of looks like a a miniature plow through the grain uh, three times a day. 
And the reason that they're doing that is they're releasing the heat um, and breaking up that rootlet material that, that's binding together. They call it felting. So basically the rootlets start to grow, the rootlets grow together, and they form a blanket on top of this bed. And as an offshoot of that enzymatic digestion, we've got heat to deal with. So even if the room is climate controlled, the bed can hit you know, 9,500 degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. So by raking three times a day, we gently break apart that rootlet mat, get some fresh air in there, and bring the temperature down. When you compare that to modern pneumatic malt houses, they're using uh, screw augers to break that rootlet material apart, and they're pushing air through the grain bed to manage temperature as well. The rootlet, uh, the raking is not enough to control heat. And the offshoot of that is that you have a more, you know, sort of, standardized process. There's not this sort of sinusoidal wave of heat and humidity building within the, the grain bed. Um, so there's not a ton of published research on, on the flavor differences of the two, just because floor malted material makes up you know less than 1% of malt on the planet. So not a whole lot of uh, research dollars have been thrown at this. But, you know, from our standpoint, it, it, it's just as much about, you know, it, it actually, it, it's kind of a, an interesting thought exercise because you would think, oh, well, if, if humans are involved and there's not, it's not happening at the same time every day, it must lead to an inconsistent product, but exactly quite the opposite. You know, if we're watching it, tasting it, smelling it three different times a day, we can actually keep a very watchful eye on that piece of malt as it's going through the germination stage. So that, that's really fun. You know, that helps us, you know, make that critical decision point. Like, okay, is this grain I'm tasting, you know, fresh cut cucumbers and maybe, uh, uh, you know, that's telling me it's ready to become a Pilsner malt. Now, if I taste something closer to pizza dough, you know, maybe that's telling me we're, we're ready for a Munich style product because it's a little bit sweeter and, and that's going to translate to color development in the kiln. And so, all of those little nuances help really, you know, help the finished product shine. And what are some aspects that affect that? Would that be like where you got the malt from, what the growing season is, or what it was like? Or is I'm kind of asking, is, is terroir something that you have to take into account? You know, what we're seeing right now is, you know, I'm not ready to, to tell you that I can tell the difference between a, a certain variety of barley grown field A that's 90 miles from the malt house versus field B that's 200 miles from the malt house. Not quite ready to declare victory on that. But I will say that, that um, we can tell distinct differences in uh, barley varieties that we grow throughout the South. Um, so primarily right now we're growing a two-row variety called Calypso and a two-row variety called Violetta. That makes up the bulk of, of what we work with. Um, Calypso to me presents more like bready, biscuity, and Violetta presents more sort of floral and, and uh, slightly herbal. And uh, so you blend those two together, and something like one of our uh, flagship malts, like uh, Base Camp or Southern Select, and you get this really nice depth of flavor that's just not present in offerings from large scale producers. And you also offer a significant amount of alternative grains. Yeah, that you know, we're. I always tell people, you know, we have one foot in the past, one foot in the future. So I'm, I'm. It's not uncommon, you know, to have a conversation with a grower who's delving into uh, 
heirloom corn varieties uh, one day of the week and then have a conversation with a plant breeder at a public university about a new variety that's going to be released in the coming year. So uh, I really like that conversation, you know, because it, it, I always tell people we can look at see a certificate of analysis all day long. There's a number for flavor on there. It tells you a ton of stuff about how your brew day is going to go, but it doesn't really tell you what the finished beer is going to taste like. And so that's the fun for me is sort of exploring the space of, you know, we've brought in, uh, we've had bloody butcher corn on for a couple of uh, years now that that's been a steadily growing. That's an heirloom variety of corn. Okay. Uh, what flavors are, are imparted with that one? Yeah. So that's really, um, an interesting like cha spice character to it, um, a little bit of clove, uh, things like that. You know, compare that with our other malted corn, which is more of a corn that you would use to make tortillas. You know, that's more once it's in its malted format, it's more just like sweet baked cornbread out of the skillet kind of thing. So fun to see those two side by side. We've got an, uh, an heirloom rag uh, called Renza Bruzzi we've been working with since uh, since we started. Really, I think that one came on. First or second year, we were we were malting, and uh, continued to see strong demand for that. Um, and then talking with, like I say, talking with folks like uh, the researchers at Virginia Tech that are about to release a variety called Avalon this year. So, you know, really excited to to uh, play both sides of the conversation. And for listeners who uh, maybe aren't too familiar with alternative grains, so when I say alternative grain, I'm talking about grains that aren't barley. So this is your rice, your corn, rice, millet, oats. <laughs> um, you've got sure. sorghum in there as well, I, I suppose. Uh, can't can't do sorghum. That that's super tiny yeah. kernel. But th- there's definitely folks that that have got uh, their equipment set up to handle that stuff. But yeah, but no, absolutely anything kind of off the beaten path in terms of the small grain world. And there have been, I mean, I've tried a couple of, of really wonderful beers brewed with heirloom corn varieties. I mean, uh, here in Virginia and in Chincoteague, we have Black Narrows Brewing Company. They're doing something with yep, heirloom yep. corn. We've got, um, I mean, not in the Southeast, but uh, Bow and Arrow Brewing Company um, also does one with a with like a blue corn variety. So there's, it's exciting to see that kind of continue to pop up a little bit and pop up. Yeah. That was you, pun you know, intended I think, for sure. Right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> the, uh, you, you know, it's really cool. I mean, as everyone's kind of exploring the lager space, you know, offering, talking about malted corn is, is a really interesting way to sort of spin that, that, you know, pre-prohibition or, you know, uh, American adjunct lager on its head and like still deliver, something that's really flavorful, but in a low ABV package. Yeah, you're definitely seeing a a higher demand for lower ABV beers for sure, if not no ABV beers. Yeah, that too. We haven't figured out where we fit in in the NA space yet, but I'm... uh, Most of our... Some of our brewers are playing around trying to figure it out, but they, they haven't... They haven't been able to communicate back to us what they need or don't need from the malt to fit into that... uh, category yeah well i think it's it's still the pioneer stage for for most uh most brewers um so kind of looping back to what you all do and kind of what sets you apart especially from you know the larger uh production facilities you all have a really big focus on sustainability 
uh, and really embracing your local community. And you do a significant amount of local sourcing, correct? Yeah. So everything that we source for our flagship product line uh, comes from the Southeast. And we sell, let's say, 99% of it, of a finished malt, back into that same footprint in the Southeast. So to put that in perspective, you know, malt is a global commodity. Uh, it, it, and the closest major malt house to where we're standing in Asheville is in Wisconsin, and they buy their barley from Wyoming. And so that's 2,000-mile-ish road trip uh, from the farm to the fermenter. And we're sourcing, like I say, most of our stuff. Um, one of our major suppliers is only 70 miles down the road. So that, that's, a, that's one, one big step there. Uh, in terms of you know shrinking the carbon emissions associated with transport, so that that that's really one of the groundbreaking things that that we're sort of been focusing on since our inception. And you all also do rootlet upcycling. What and and can you break down exactly what that is for our listeners? Because it's a, not the most common term. Sure. So I mentioned, you know, in the process, we've got this, you know, we've got the chit and then basically the rootlets grow out of the chit. And so when the rootlets sort of peter out and quit growing during the germination stage, they're maybe quarter inch long. At the end of kilning, they're dry and essentially toasted to almost burnt. And if they make their way into the finished, uh, into the brew house, into the mash time, the brewer's going to get unwanted color and unwanted flavor from these things. So it's up to the maltster um, as the final step of processing is cleaning. So we have what's called a debearding auger that the grain passes through that um, removes the rootlet from the kernel, and then it goes through a seed cleaner that sifts everything out. So at the end of the day, we're left with clump uniform kernels going into the finished product bag, and then we have you know, a super sack full of rootlet material that is available as animal feed. And so as we've grown, we've continued to expand our network of uh, working with local farmers that, you know, have run chickens, pigs, cattle, etc. This is a great feed additive because it's dry and it's very high in protein, like typically 30% by weight. So they'll mix this in with part of the animal's ra- uh, ration and uh, everybody wins. We keep it out of a landfill, and um, the farmer gets a low-cost, high-protein feed. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so we were able to divert, mm, I think, well north of 100,000 pounds last year from a landfill into a cow's wow. belly. Oh, that's amazing. And um, kind of moving forward, are there other sustainable practices that you're hoping to implement? Yeah, we keep looking to, um, you know, shrink the footprint in terms of where the raw materials are coming from. Uh, we're working with, uh, you know, we've got some great partners at the state government level that are you know, looking to help us find uh, ways to improve the energy efficiency of our building and also um, looking at regenerative agriculture as a way of not only going local, but going, you know, carbon se- talking about carbon sequestration so th- I think there's some some really fascinating things that that are opening up. Um, you know, regenerative agriculture is just basically the latest term to describe low and no-till uh, crop uh, farming, and you know, using grazing and you know, just basically sustainably focused uh, 
processes, a lot of which our farmers already do, but it's a matter of getting those processes checked and seeing if we're actually truly sequestering carbon in the ground at the end of the day. And that's a whole other, (laughs) that's a whole other thing to, (laughs) that's a whole other conversation. Yes, Um, exactly. Still very much the wild west. So I have to say, so malting is a very, very niche market and and practice. How did you and your co-founder decide, yeah, we're going to open up our own uh, artisanal malting. This is what we're going to do. Right. Yeah. So my co-founder, Brian Simpson, and I uh, are sustainability geeks. Uh, We worked together as environmental consultants before we opened Riverbend and we worked in biodiesel together. So we, we just knew whatever we were going to do had to have a, a very strong you know, focus on the environment. And uh, we knew we were going to be a triple bottom line company. When we looked at the state of Asheville in you know, 2009, 2010, we thought, well, there's already a lot of breweries here. You know, we don't want to open the 13th brewery. That'd be crazy, right? And now there's 40, so we totally just missed that completely. But, you know, we sort of turned our focus to, well, where's all the raw ingredients coming from? You know, so we immediately looked at hops. And hops can grow in the southeast, but it it has its own suite of challenges. But when we looked at barley and malting, it it seemed like a, a more intriguing idea. You know, we already had half a million acres uh, being cultivated for small grains in North Carolina. That meant we had, you know, infrastructure to test it. Uh, We had farmers interested in growing it. And a lot of the pieces of the puzzle kind of started to to fall into play. We had uh, a great support network from agriculture extension agents, both in uh, NC State and Virginia Tech, that helped us in the early days connect with growers and other uh, academic resources. So that all kind of got the ball rolling downhill. Um, and then, you, you know, the idea was, well, let's just try to act like the, the farmer's market of, of malt for this ever-growing group of breweries in western North Carolina. And we, we just kind of envisioned ourselves sort of working at our craft and, and delivering our product out of the back of a biodiesel powered delivery van and that was that was kind of the vision in the early days was let's just see if anyone cares about this and and take a swing at it and turns out people were interested and demand has been growing steadily since we started so it's been a fun ride and i mean of course you are a service to your local breweries and the brewing scene especially in north carolina has massively exploded um, and breweries throughout all the Southeast, but I mean, you all have some reach. You've done some, you supplied for some brews with like New Belgium, correct? Yes. The, so we've, we've, that's been the really cool part of all of this is, is we've had an opportunity to work with, you know, everybody from Sierra, New Belgium, uh, down to, you know, small scale partners that are doing one to five barrel batches. Um, but yeah, so the, in the early days, we, we did a beer um, with New Belgium called Rye IPA. Um, it was part of their Hop Kitchen series. And this beer, I believe, was one of the first, if not the first, um, beers to wear a Kraft Malt House's name on the label, to uh, sort of trumpeting a, a sourcing or, a, or a, name, 
a name brand, if you will, other than a hop variety. And uh, I mean, maybe occasionally you'd see an English beer uh, name drop Maris Otter, uh, the the sort of king of malt varieties, uh, barley varieties, I should say. But um, but you know that release kind of helped kick things off. You know. Uh, put us on the map, and then Asheville, uh, Asheville South Slope breweries really started to gain national prominence with their uh, sour mixed culture programs, and we slid in perfectly with that, with a, a really sort of rustic Pilsner malt made with North Carolina-grown ingredients. and So uh, all of these things sort of spooled up really nicely, um, and you know now we're regularly featured in projects with Wicked Weed, Sierra, uh, Aerial, you name it. So it, it's it's been uh, fun. Florida's really jumping off for us right now too. So that's been fun to uh, go down there and watch that. It, uh, they've actually taken the crown from North Carolina as having the most breweries uh, of any state in the southeast. One of our good customers, uh, Crooked Can, down there just cleaned up at their Florida Brewers uh, competition with uh, several products featuring our malt. So that that's always gratifying too when it's it's not just the you know the the guy who owns the company telling you how great his products are, but actually seeing a, a beer judge pick one out of the lot and say, this one's pretty damn good, you know? Uh, so it's, it's been really cool to see those, those uh, uh, awards uh, be bestowed on some of our customers' products. For sure. I mean, and listeners, if you've learned anything from this show, it's that a thousand and one decisions go into making a brew and you are only as good as your raw products. I mean, it's just like a chef, right? You have to start with good ingredients if you're going to make a delicious dish. So, you know, to kind of have really high quality malt, which my analogy is that it's the baseline. Like this is this is your beat. This is your drum uh, for your song. So that's really great that that people can pick that out and appreciate that for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, especially with the current su- supply chain, uh, I'll, I'll use the term meltdown. Uh, this is a drinking you know, game, by the way. Like, the more times about... you mention supply chain, like that's <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> then, then bottoms up. The, uh, but yeah. So right now, it's it's not uncommon to hear a three month lead time for products coming out of Western Europe, and we're typically delivering malt that's three weeks or less old. So, I mean, it, we get it all the time, you know, brewers mash in for the first time and they're like, holy cow, my brewery smelled like a bakery today, you know? And, uh, you know, staff get to the point where they can pick it up like, Oh, we're brewing a Riverbend beer today. I can tell it smells great in here, you know? So we love that type of feedback and, and glad that it's translating to the, to the finished product. You know, the other, I should say, I wear another hat as uh, president of the Craft Maltsters Guild, our, our trade association that represents, you know, over 60 uh, craft malt producers across uh, the U.S. and Canada and, and uh, more recently around the world. And uh, so it, it's been really gratifying to see the movement grow and, and these similar sort of aha moments happen in, across the nation, across the continent, and now uh, across the world. So um, really cool to see that happening. Yeah. So you can learn more at craftmalting.com. I would also recommend for listeners whose interest was maybe piqued in the malting process, uh, Riverbend Malt House does have a really great informative video on the process of malting. 
um, and a lot of the basics are covered, but really good visuals as far as what things actually look like. I think the description of handwriting is one thing, but actually seeing it makes helps it click pretty nicely. Absolutely. Yeah, we love getting folks in for tours, you know, watching the light bulbs come on, uh, you know, even folks that have attended uh, prestigious brewing schools, classes, whatever. It, it Malt gets covered, obviously, but often they don't have a chance to tour a facility. So it, it's always fun to see uh, even experienced brewers uh, coming into their first malt house and they're like, oh, my God, this is amazing how much goes into this. Um, you know, because especially a lot of them, you know, don't get the agricultural backstory either. So for us, it's, you know, we're talking about growing winter barley in the south, which is another differentiating factor. So we plant in October, harvest in June, whereas most of the malt made on the planet is produced using spring barley from western U.S., western Canada, uh, western Europe. This goes from, you know, your typical summer months. They're trying to get in the ground right now um, in the Dakotas. It's a little wet up there right now, but you know they would typically be planting in mid-May, harvesting before the first frost in late August, and so that's one big differentiating factor where people are like, "I had no idea." You, you know, you're using a completely different suite of barley varieties than you know these major malt houses that we've been previously working with. So it's really cool to like wind the clock all the way back to the planting day and and tell the story from that point. And also, you know, if you want to get an idea of kind of the range of what malts are and what they can be and what flavors they can impart, I would recommend, you know, most homebrew stores would have a pretty decent selection of malt or even online. And you can order little samples and you don't have to be a homebrewer. You can just steep it like you would a tea. And that way you can taste, you know, the difference between Pilsner malt and a chocolate malt and caramel malt and kind of see how vastly different the colors are, but also the flavor profiles for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I always love to, to rummage around in our, our local homebrew store and see what's new and, and different. And if they're carrying a new supplier stuff, uh, we just got back from a craft brewers conference in Minneapolis. So I have two bags of samples to do just that, uh, do, do some hot steeps from around the world. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to get to get into those. I'm not trying to shout out a competitor. I will just say that the chocolate malt balls from Bree Malt are the highlight of craft brewers conference for me every year. (laughs) How how can we compete against candy? I know. know. Malt is tasty, but it's not covered in chocolate. So, but no, it's, uh, yeah, we've we've been uh, you know trying to figure out our, a little spin on that, but ha- haven't found a good one. So tip of the cap to Breeze for keeping those uh, packed in the in the uh, pallets over the years. Brent, thank you so much for taking the time and walking our listeners through everything you do. Like I said, check out Riverbend Malt House uh, website not only for their really great ten year anniversary movie, but also kind of the basics of malting. Again. Listeners, I appreciate you taking the time to listen in. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, feel free to reach out at BeerMeRadio on Instagram or BeerMeRadio at gmail.com. Like, follow, subscribe, give all the stars anywhere you get your podcasts, and we will catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.